Good afternoon, church family. Uh, we're going to do a little different method this afternoon. All right, we're going to study. Uh, I hope you have pen and paper. And we're going to study. Uh, we're going to look at an event that happened historically. And we're going to compare that event to what's transpiring in our present day. And by God's grace, remember, God does not speak to his people in these last days in parables. He speaks to us plainly in regards to what is going to transpire in this world. And we're going to need wisdom that is beyond our years. And we're going to need you to take notes because I don't want you to trust anything I have to say. Is that all right? So let's pray together and ask God for help as we open to study his word this afternoon. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, again, the task is beyond my own intellect and my abilities. And your words, Lord, are necessary right now for our salvation, that our thoughts and feelings connect with your own. I ask that you be with each one in this room. Speak to each one individually, Father. And teach us, Lord, where we need to be in relation to where you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, we're going to our favorite verse, Psalms 37. And since you've been with me these past few nights, you know the question I'm going to ask you. What does God love? Judgment. God loves judgment. And this morning we saw very simply uh, the woman caught in adultery. She was under judgment. And God loved the fact that he could be in that situation and deliver that woman from the hand of her enemies. There's something about judgment that God enjoys for he, know, he does not leave the saints of God in the hands of the enemy too long. In fact, let's keep reading in Psalm 37 and look what it says in verse 29. It says, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of what? So the righteous talk about judgment. It's something that they're excited about because God is in the process of delivering his people from the hand of the enemy. And sometimes, beloved, we're in the bed with the enemy. We don't know who the enemy is. But he wants to deliver us from the enemy. And verse 31 says, the law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay them. When I read this verse, my mind went to the story of Daniel while he is in Babylon. And there's those men in leadership are looking to catch Daniel in an act of evil or an act of violation of some law. So they create a law to entrap Daniel and make a law against the law of his God. The wicked are looking for the opportunity to say, you're not really a Christian. You're not really who you say you are. They're looking for their opportunity. And then the Bible says to the Lord will not leave him in his hand, not leave him in the wicked's hand, nor condemn him when he is what? When he is judged. That's you and me, friends. When the enemy seeks to ensnare us and entrap us like he entrapped that woman. Like he entraps us daily. You know the chapter snares of Satan. You ever read that chapter in the great controversy? Satan invents a thousand ways to entice and entrap the people of God. And Satan well knows that all he can lead to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures will be overcome with his attacks. 
And I just think about that and I say, Father, forgive me for the time that I've neglected to spend with you. All the times that I've uh, uh, wasted doing nothing. I mean, have you thought about the time that you just sat there and just did nothing? Absolutely nothing. And you look at your day and like, what did I do with my time? Lord, forgive me for that. But notice what verse 34 says. It's a wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt thee to inherit what? When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away and lo, he was not yea. Yea, he, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man. And behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is the Lord. He is their strength in the time of what? In the time of trouble. And friends, we're about to enter into a very serious time of trouble here shortly. I want to bypass this for time's sake. We're going to be talking about the rise of rebellion. The rise of of rebellion. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I want you to see in Revelation chapter 11, beginning at verse number 1. Revelation 11 and verse 1. It says, and there was given me a great a reed like a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. This forty and two months is the time frame of the papal supremacy, where the people of God are trodden down or persecuted and prosecuted for the truth. Now watch carefully, verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. So we're about to go to class now. The Bible says that he gives power to his two witnesses. I definitely don't feel like I'm spelling, right? Two witnesses. Notice what else the Bible says about these two witnesses. These are the two olive trees. Two olive trees. Now, what else are they called? These are the two olive trees and the two what? Candlesticks. Two candlesticks. When the Bible uses imagery like this, I like to pay attention to that imagery. It describes the two witnesses in two additional ways. The first way as olive trees, the second way as candlesticks. Well, let's go a little further. Notice what they do. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devour their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. So let me ask you a question. You're going to tell me an answer. I'm, just, I'm excited to hear what you're going to tell me. Who are these two witnesses? Old and New Testament. Okay, I like your answer. Now, prove it. This is the Old and New Testament. 
I'm going to challenge your thought this morning. I say you are correct, 100% correct, the Old and New Testament, but I need you to be able to prove it since you are Seventh-day Adventists. The Seventh-day Adventists don't just believe a man's opinion. They need the word of God. Is that right? They want to test everything by the inspired book. So let's begin. First Kings chapter 6 and verse 23. We're going to lay out some principles here. First Kings chapter 6 and verse 23. Notice here what the Bible says in First Kings 6 and verse 23. Remember there are two candlesticks, two olive trees. These are the two witnesses. First Kings 6 and verse 23. The Bible says, And within the oracle... He made two cherubims of what? Isn't that interesting? The cherubims in Solomon's temple were made of olive trees. Hmm. What's a cherubim? What's the work of the cherubim? What are they supposed to do? They're protecting what? What are they protecting? What are they overlooking? So they're in the Ark of the Covenant, they're, they're in the most holy place, they're in this place, and these angels are protecting this Ark, and in the Ark is the Ten Commandment Law. Is that right? And notice what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 31, just to prove the point. Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. Beginning at verse number 18. Exodus 31, verse 18, notice what the Bible says. In Exodus 31, and verse 18, the Bible says, And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communion with him, upon the Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of what? Stone, written with what? Right, keep that thought in mind. The table of the testimony, on tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Let's go a little further. Notice what it says in Exodus chapter 32 and looking at verse number 15. It says, and Moses turned and went down from the mount and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both sides on the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God graven upon the what? All right. So let's. I'm giving you pieces of a puzzle here. The tables are written on both sides. They're tables of the testimony. These tables are supposed to go into the ark. In fact, go to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. And notice what it says in Exodus 25 in verse number 22. Actually, we can start at verse number 21. Exodus 25, we're looking at verse 21. Notice what the Bible says here. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. So chapter 31 was the testimony written on both sides. This verse tells us that this testimony is placed inside the ark. Everybody follow so far? All right. So the first thing we're seeing now is that these angels are overlooking the testimony. The testimony are the ten commandments. They are written on both sides. Watch carefully what we're doing here. Go to chapter Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31, beginning at verse 26. Deuteronomy 31 and beginning at verse 26. Notice here what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 26. Can we have it just say amen? 
All right, give you a few more moments. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31 and verse 26, the Bible says, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, that it may be there for a what? Book of the law was a witness. Against. Now, why am I putting this here? This book of the law was the writings of Moses. Or another word is saying that is the spirit of prophecy. Because you have the Ten Commandment law and everything else outside of the Ten Commandment law is the spirit of prophecy. Because these men are... Come, the Holy Ghost comes upon them and they speak, speak under the unction of the Spirit of God. So first and foremost, there's the testimony or the Ten Commandments, which is the covenant that God wants to make with his people. And then you have the book of the law, which was a witness against them, i.e. it was the spirit of prophecy put on the side of the ark. Keep this thought in mind. These angels are protecting the law and the prophets. Now wait. Let's go a little further. Go to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. We're studying, friends. This is my favorite part. I love to study. Amen. I just love, I love to study. Zechariah chapter 4. And we're looking at verse number 1. Zechariah chapter 4. And we're beginning at verse number 1. And looking verse 1. And we're going to read 1 to 3. And then we're going to jump down to verse 11. But let's look at it. It says, and the angel that talked talk with me came again and waked me as a man that is waking out of his sleep and said unto me, what seest thou? And I said, I looked and behold a candlestick, all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof and the two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side of the bowl. So this is the picture that I see in my mind. Let me erase a little bit. This is the picture I see in my mind. I see a candlestick with seven pipes. I see a tree. Well, forgive my artwork, amen. And I see another tree. Out of this tree is a pipe connecting to the pipe. Out of the olive trees going into this pipe. And on top of the pipes are lamps. I want to introduce a thought to you. I hope, you, I hope you've uh, been studying your Bibles. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, where does Jesus stand in the midst of? Let's go to Revelation 1. Keep your finger in Zechariah 4. Don't lose your place. Go to Revelation 1. In Revelation chapter 1, notice where Jesus stands. In Revelation chapter 1, and begin at verse 12. Revelation 1 and verse 12. The Bible says, in Revelation 1, 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned... I saw seven golden, what? Candlesticks. Notice what it says in verse 20. 
the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars of the angels of the seven, the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven what? All right. So candlesticks, the sticks themselves represent the churches. The candlesticks are different from the lamps. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4. We're studying. It's okay. It's okay to study. Revelation chapter 4. And I want you to jump down to verse number 5. Revelation 4 and verse 5. When you have it, say amen. amen. Revelation 4 5 says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven what? Lamps of fire. Burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Hmm. So the seven candlesticks are the seven churches, but the lamps are the seven spirits. Did you know that God has seven spirits? He does. Go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Don't lose Zechariah. We're going back there. Go to the book of Isaiah. We're going to Isaiah chapter 11. Watch carefully. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning at verse number 1. And sometimes, because we read so quickly over passages, we don't get the benefit of what they mean. Isaiah chapter 11, look at verse number 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of what? And a branch shall grow out of his roots. I find that interesting that the language would be used that a branch will grow out of its roots. It's making imagery as if it were a candlestick. Dollar tree, same thing. Seven golden branches out of the candlesticks. The one candlestick has branches. But watch what happens now. Verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Those are six spirits right there. Do you see that? If you read a little closer, notice what it says in verse three. And shall make him a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge. The seventh spirit is judgment. These are the seven spirits of God. Now, it's very interesting now, because then when you read, if this church doesn't get itself right, it says, I'll remove its candlestick out of its place. The candlestick is not the lamp. The candlestick is simply the conduit by which the oil flows that the light can be seen. Think about it. Let's go back to Zechariah. We're not done yet. Zechariah. I have to give you this before I give you the other weighty matters that we're going to deal with. Zechariah chapter 4. And notice what it says in verse number 4. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these my Lord, what are these? What are these? What is this? What is this symbolizing? What are these, my Lord? And he says, 
Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by, but by my what? Isn't that interesting? See, the two olive trees are sending the oil into the branches so that the church can give its light. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel is concerned about the establishment and the restoration of the church. And the vision is given to him to say, look, it's not going to be done by any of your natural abilities, but it's going to be done by supernatural connection with the spirit. But let's go a little further, though. Notice what it says in verse 11. Then answered I and said unto him, what are these two olive trees on the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, what be these two olive branches? Once he says olive trees, now he says olive branches, which through the gold, two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves. And he answered and said unto me, knowest thou not what these be? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two, what are they? The two anointed ones which stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Interesting. Go back to Revelation chapter 11. Keep your finger in Zechariah. You're going to compare verses with verses right now. Look at Revelation chapter 11. Notice the language that's used in verse number 4. 11 verse 4. Revelation 11 verse 4. Notice the language. We're comparing verse with verse. These are the two olive trees... And the two candlesticks stand before the God of what? The earth. And then you go back over here to Zechariah 4 and it says, And he answered and said unto me, No, it's not what these, these be. I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's talking about the same powers. Well, who are these two anointed ones? What do they represent? Let's go a little further. Verse number five. If any man will hurt them, uh, Revelation eleven five. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. So this, since this is a class, I'm going to ask you a question. You just need to give me an answer back. In the Bible, are there any illustrations of fire coming down on anybody when they attempted to deal with the people of God in the wrong way. All right, give me, give me some examples. Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is a good one because it, fire does come down from heaven, but it doesn't necessarily, they're not necessarily dealing with the people of God per se. But give me another one. What did you say, sister? Second resurrection. Second resurrection, that's pretty tough. That's a tough one. But yes, second resurrection. Well, let's go Old Testament. Elijah. Elijah. And Aaron's son. Okay, Elijah. Tell me a little bit more about Elijah. Uh, when they were, the king sent out after that man. Yeah, so the king, the king says, go get uh, Elijah. And Elijah's sitting on a mountain. Now watch this now. Elijah's sitting on a mountain or a little hill. And the man says, man of God, come down. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. This is 2 Kings chapter 1. 
Then another soldier comes and with another 50 men and says, man of God, come down. And same thing happened. If I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And it did. Finally, one of the soldiers said, I got an idea. I'm not going to go demand of the prophet anything else. I'm going to request, Mr. Prophet, sir, uh, I know that you're a man of God. Please forgive us for even bothering you. <laughs> and the man of God goes with them. It's when they sought to touch the prophet that fire came down. Listen to what I'm saying. When they sought to touch the prophet is when fire came down. Notice what else it says. And it says, and devoured their enemies. And if any man were hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Now, there's another story about uh, fire coming down. Remember when, Moses, when they were questioning Moses and his leadership abilities? Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And you remember the ground opened up and swallowed up? Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. But Korah, Dathan, and Abiram had 250 followers. And the Bible says that God sent fire down from heaven and dealt with those men who are going after Moses. So this one principle, this one story, highlights two men. Let me put them here. Please don't, mistake, don't get this mistaken, though. This is Moses and Elijah. There's a reason why the Bible is using these figures or these principles. Now let's go a little further. Look in the verse, verse number six. These have power to shut heaven. What Bible story? Tell me, what Bible story talks about heaven and no rain? What, what Bible story? Elijah, again, we're being referenced to Elijah. These have power to shut up heaven. Question, did Elijah have in himself the ability to shut up heaven? Remember, Elijah walked in before the king and says, by my word, there will be no rain. But you remember, James chapter 5 says that Elijah prayed according to the word because of the apostasy that it would be no rain. Did you know Elijah prayed and it stopped raining? Elijah prayed and it stopped raining. It wasn't because of his own ability. He prayed according to the law and to the testimony. And he prayed and God said, okay, I'm sealing up heaven. Well, let's think about this now. Notice the next part of the verse. That it rained not in the days of their prophecy and shall have power over waters to turn them to blood. Tell me, what story in the Bible is water turned to blood? Well, there it is again. We have Moses and Elijah being referred to in this passage. But let me, ask you, let me ask you another question. How do we know that this is not literally Moses and Elijah? How do we know? Because they didn't mention Hold on. Okay, Moses died, but you know he resurrected and went to heaven. But yes, what do you say? Okay, no name mentioned, yes. All right, very good. We're looking at the time prophecy. Remember, they prophesied for 1,260 days. Is that right? That day for a year time frame, Moses and Elijah were down here preaching. All right, so that's how we know that this is not really Moses and Elijah, but they represent something. But let's go a little further. It says, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So right now we have Moses and Elijah. But let me ask you this question. Well, I won't ask you. I'll just tell you. Go to Matthew 17 and verse 2. Matthew 17 and verse 2. Matthew 17 and verse 2. We're just studying right now. We're going back and forth, comparing Scripture with Scripture, seeking to understand what the Word of God is trying to tell us in these last hours of verse history. Matthew 17 and verse 2. Notice what the Bible says. 
The Bible says, and was transfigured before them, speaking of Jesus, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them, who? Moses and Elijah. Ain't that interesting? But wait, it gets more interesting. This morning I was going to talk to you about Revelation 10, but I didn't talk about it. In Revelation chapter 10, there's an angel that comes down from heaven. And he's clothed with a cloud, and his face is like the sun. I was going to tell you this morning, but I didn't get a chance to tell you, that a rainbow and a cloud together equal a covenant. And I was going to tell you this morning, I didn't get a chance to tell you, that only God comes in a cloud. Only God comes in a cloud. And I was going to tell you that his feet were like pillars of fire. And I was going to tell you that only God was the one that came in a pillar of fire and led the people of God in the wilderness during that time frame. So in Revelation chapter 10, who you see coming down is none other than the person of Jesus. But wait. In the book of Revelation, go to Revelation chapter 1. You're going to read for me Revelation chapter 1. We're going to go back to Matthew 17 in a moment, and we're going to go back to Revelation 11. But go to Revelation chapter 1. I want you to read out loud for me Revelation 1, and I want you to read verses 1, 2, 1 and 2 for now. Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2. Read it out loud for me. I'll take a volunteer reader. Go ahead. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Pause. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. So let's put this in order. God gives it to who? Jesus. All right, keep going. To show unto his servants that which must shortly come to pass. Mm -hmm, keep going. Okay, hold on. So God gives it to Jesus. Jesus gives it to the angel. And then go ahead, keep reading. And so the angel gives it to who? And then John gives it to who? All right. John to the seven churches with our in Ephesus, right? And he writes, and John gives it to the churches. All right. Now watch the order. From God to Jesus to the angel to John to the churches. There's a reason. Watch carefully. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. Go there quickly. Revelation 5. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 5. And I love this. You know, I, when, when I study this and I think about it, my imagination begins to wrap around it. Sometimes in this passage, I actually cry when I'm by myself. I don't want to cry in front of you guys. Huh? <laughs> when you think about the weight of what's happening in this passage, it's amazing. But notice what it says. It says, and I saw on the right hand of him. This is Revelation 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within... And on what? Well, where did we see that before earlier today? Where did we see that? The Ten Commandments. Remember the law of God written on the front and on the back? Okay, look. Written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who was worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven, nor on earth, nor under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Can you imagine what kind of book that was? They couldn't even look at the book. 
Couldn't look at it. No man was even worthy in heaven or on earth, neither under the earth. There was nobody that had died in the past that they can raise up and say, come on, open this book. Nobody was worthy. Notice what else it says. Look. And one of the elders saith unto me, weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, have prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the... Wait a second. Did you see that? What did we say the seven spirits of God were before? What, we, what were they symbolized as? Seven lamps. So now you see it symbolized again now with the seven eyes. It seems to me that Jesus has the seven spirits. It's embodied in his person. But wait, there's more. And I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent forth to all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the hand of him that sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vows full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Now, why is it a new song, friends? What's a new song? Is it an old song? What, what, what does it mean when it's a new song? It's never been sung before. It's a song. And, you know, most of the songs in this Bible and most of the songs in your experience should be based on an experience. You hear what I said? Yeah, that's why when I do song service, I never ask anybody to sing louder. You know why? Because if, if you haven't been redeemed, I, I can't make you sing redeemed. <laughs> is that right? If I sing redeemed, how? And you're singing redeemed, how? I love it. Man, when is this going to be over? You haven't been redeemed. It's not, it, it, it's not moving you. It's not part of your experience. But these people, these, I mean, these angels sing a song, a new song. And what's the lyrics? I like the lyrics. And they sing a new song. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and what? Tongue and people and nation. And has made us, and made us unto God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. Notice, notice, notice. Their song is based on what Jesus has just finished doing. What did he just finish doing? He just died on Calvary. What you're seeing in Revelation 5 is the inauguration of Jesus coming and sitting on his throne as king or as high priest. That's what you're looking at in Revelation 5. And he takes a book. The book is closed. And it has seven seals. It's written on the front and on the back, go to Revelation 10 now. We're going to go back to Revelation 17. Don't forget, I haven't forgotten. In Revelation 10, notice what it says now in Revelation 10. In verse 1, it says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet were as pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a what? Little book and his what? Wait a second. The little book is open. The book is open. The book that was closed, written on both sides, is now open. 
Now, there's a reason for this. There's an experience that these people are about to have, and I, and, I, and I don't want to deviate too far from this, but the experience that these people have when they eat the book is sweet in their mouth, but is bitter in the, bitter in the belly. Now, anybody knows about bitter herbs? What's the purpose of bitter herbs? My wife and I made up a song about it so we can remember it, so I won't sing it, but I'll just say what it is. It loosens and cleanses and causes oxidation. That's the purpose of bitter herbs. It loosens and cleanses and causes oxidation. When this book is eaten, there's a purification process that's taking place. There's a purging that's taking place. And the, the angel says at the end, look at the end of Revelation uh, 10 and verse 11. It says, and he said unto me, thou must prophesy how? Again. Again. Before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The last time that phrase was used was in Revelation 5. Now it's used here in Revelation 10. And now look at Revelation 14. Look at Revelation 14. Look at Revelation 14. Look at verse 6. And you know about heart. We're doing, we're, we're connecting some thoughts and feelings together so we can understand what is transpiring here in these final hours of earth's history. It says, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting what? Gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation and kindred and tongue and, well, there you see it again, three times. It's under the first angel's message here spoken. This angel has a book. But this angel has two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. Jesus had two witnesses. He had Moses and Elijah. And now the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are, well, they symbolize Moses and Elijah. But notice, when you're looking at the person of Moses, if you studied the book, you know, studied your Bible, you know that Moses represents the law giver. Elijah is considered the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy. So when you look at the two witnesses, the two witnesses are simply the law and the Prophets. That's how you prove biblically that this is the word of God. These law and the prophets are standing there and they are identifying the papal power saying that, uh, remember Friday night, those of you here Friday night, how many witnesses do you need to have in order to call some, something sin? You need two to three witnesses. You can't call the man of sin the man of sin without two witnesses. The law and the prophets. Now watch carefully what I'm going to do right now. On the screen, rebellion is as the sin of what? Now I pay, when I read these passages, my mind starts to just meditate and let it sit in. You ever seen a rebellious child before? Why y'all say it so strong? Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. There's spiritualism taking place. When you have a child that's in rebellion. 
and stubbornness is as idolatry. That's what it says. Now, this is very interesting in my mind. Notice what what this says on the screen. For thousands of years. Can you turn that down a little bit because they won't be able to hear me. For thousands of years, Satan has been experimenting upon the properties of the human mind. And he has learned to know it well. By his subtle workings in these last days, he is linking the human mind with his own. Imbuing it with his thoughts. And he is doing this work in so deceptive a manner that none but his voice will be heard. Wait, when I first read that, I got afraid. Satan is linking the human mind with his own, imbuing it with his thoughts. He's doing this work in so deceptive a manner that when you think you're hearing the voice of Jesus, you're really following the voice of Satan. There's a reason why I'm laying this out. Watch this. And before we begin this, I want you to listen, listen to what is said. Listen to what is said. And you can turn this one up. I want you to listen to what is said. And then I'm going to show you how what this entity is saying is being, has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled. And we only have a few short months to a few short years to make sure we're right. I want you to hear. Go ahead. Of the world and address all of humanity. 
His name is my trial, but he will not lose that name until enough people are responding to him and what is called the day of declaration is, has arrived. Then my trial come before the world on the day of declaration and acknowledge his true status. We can only afford one world. That world has to be one in fact and in deed and at peace. And the only way to get peace is to create justice. So the only way to get justice is to have trust. How do you get trust? There will never be justice if there is no trust. So the only way to create trust is to share the resources of the world. This is the year of the tiger. And the year of the tiger, according to my trailer, is a year in which great things take place. Great big things take place. The tiger brings about big change. And humanity will wake up in this year. And from now on, I will demand of its governments changes which up to now they thought it would never get. And the world will undergo quickly change such a motion in this country. Humanity itself. Humanity itself. Alright, somebody says, oh, well, that's weird, Andre. Maitreya is the New Age Christ. And this entity is going to show up and claim that it's Christ. What I thought was interesting, this is the year 2010, that he's saying this. And he says, humanity itself will wake up and humanity will demand of its government changes, which heretofore they didn't think they could make. That's 2010. Summer of 2010, Greece begins to demand of its government changes. January 2011, the Middle East begins to go into this huge uproar of craziness. Well, tell me something. Whose mind is linked to that mind that you see on the screen? Somehow, beloved, the enemy is co-opting the world and the people of God are not even united together in his word. The world is being drawn together in these final conflicts of earth's history, and we're not united. In fact, I'm going to share, you some, share something with you, and I'm going to show you what this man said and how it's being fulfilled, but I need to take you back in history. I need to take you back to the French Revolution. The French Revolution is a microcosm of end-time events, and history repeats itself. And we're going to look at some historical points. You might get bored with this part. That's a... That's, all, that's on you if you want to be bored with it. But I want you to pay attention to what happened during the French Revolution and how this revolution is a microcosm of what's about to transpire. For we read in Revelation 11.7, notice what it says in Revelation 11.7. And when they have finished their testimony, talking about the two witnesses, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and uh, kill them. 
And this happened during the French Revolution. Watch what happens. There's a reason for the French Revolution. We're going to think right now. It's okay to think. Is that all right? I'm going to list six reasons why the French Revolution took place. The first reason, the most important reason, is that Christians were killed out of France. True Christians. The Protestants were chased out of France. Historically, it says, who are the Huguenots? Since the Huguenots of France were in large part artisans, craftsmen, and professional people, they were usually well received in the countries which they fled for refuge when religious discrimination or overt persecution caused them to leave France. Most of them went initially to Germany, the Netherlands, and England, although some found their way eventually to places such as remote as South Africa. Considerable numbers of Huguenots migrated to British, North America, especially to the Carolinas, Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York. Their character and talents in the art, sciences, and industry were such that they were generally felt to have been a substantial loss to the French society from which they had been forced to withdraw and a corresponding gain to the communities and nations into which they settled. To the Huguenots, Christians. True Christians are good with their hands, their minds, and their characters. True Christians are the salt of the earth. So wherever you put a Christian, that area should prosper. Did you hear what I said? You see, when this financial crisis comes, the true Christians who follow the counsel following this word will prosper during that time frame. Uh, Y'all hearing me? There must be a new economy that the people of God must understand. If you're not able to buy or sell, what economy are you working on? You might have to be working on heaven's economy. You got to figure out what heaven's economy is if you're going to be functioning during the time where you are not going to be able to buy or sell. Notice what else it says. The exodus of the Huguenots from France created a brain drain. As many Huguenots had occupied important places in society from which the kingdom did not fully recover for years. The French crown's refusal to allow non-Catholics to settle in New France may help to explain the colony's slow rate of population growth compared to that of the neighboring British colonies. All right, let's go a little further. The persecution and flight of the Huguenots greatly damaged the reputation of Louis XIV abroad, particularly in England, the two kingdoms which had, had enjoyed peaceful relations prior to 1685. These nations became bitter enemies and fought against each other in a series of wars called the Hundred Year War. Now, you see on the screen here is France, and you have those green dots representing the churches in France, Protestant churches. The large orange circles are the larger Protestant churches. Now, notice the next graph. 40 to 50,000 leave and go to England. 50 to 60,000 go to Dutch Republic. 22,000 Christians go to Switzerland. 30,000 go to Germany. And the list can go on. You're talking about a massive exodus out of France. Are you following me? Huge amounts of Christians leave. But if the Christians leave, nothing gonna, nothing's going to happen but chaos. Let's, let's go a little further. There are a couple other reasons for the French Revolution. Notice. France sent troops and supplies to aid the American revolutionaries. In other words, France sent money to fight foreign wars, even though France didn't have any money. Wait, did I say that right? They sent people over to Iraq. Oh, did I say Iraq? Even though the nation was already bankrupt. 
They fought foreign powers when they didn't have any money. And the reason they did this was because they hated Britain and they didn't want Britain to, to succeed. So they figured they hurt Britain by helping fight foreign wars. Well, let's go a little further. They were having financial difficulties. By the year 1789, France was broke. They had no money. You'll see. France was an absolute monarchy with a weak monarch. Let me translate that. France had weak leadership in government positions. And this calls for the downfall of France. Let's look at the conditions of the times. Let's pay attention. Watch this now. Taxes increased. Rent increased. Inadequate methods of agriculture. That's happening around America right now, friends. Around the world. Prices of goods rose quicker than wages. 22% wage increase, but 62% cost of living increase. The monarchy was a dictatorship. The estate general had not met since 1614, and France was bankrupt by 1789. This was the condition of France right before the French Revolution. Let's go a little further. Notice the pictures. Here you see a peasant, and on the back of the peasant, you have the nobles sitting on the back of the peasants. This was the propaganda used during the French Revolution to get the people agitated at the government. I hope you're paying attention. You see a peasant there lying on the ground and on top of him is the noble and the priest standing on top of them. And the art is used to get people angry to be mad at the government. I wonder. Let's do a brief storyline. The estate general meets at Versailles on May 5th, 1789. The nobility argued that the three estates meet separately and vote as individual bodies. Now, you have to understand how this works. And I'm going to put a number up here. You might be familiar with it. The three estates was like a little pyramid situation going on here. This is the clergy. They were the top 1%. Anybody paying attention? The next group underneath that 1%. Were the nobles, these are very rich, they were about 3%, 3 to 1%, 3 to 2%, and 97% of the population were common folks. Now, mind you, each one of these groups only had one vote. So this group here can just come together and vote, and these people will still have to do what this little group says. I want you to see what's happening here. So the people said, this is not right. This is not fair. And so they broke off on June 10, 1789. The third estate broke the stalemate. They went and were in what they called the tennis court, which was really a handball court. And they're in the tennis court and they make an oath. And they say, we will not leave this court until we have made a new constitution, calling it the Declaration of the Rights of Men. Wait, I wonder what it looked like. Let me go back. I'm going to show you a picture of what the Declaration of Rights of Men looked like. And we're studying right now, so I'm not in any, I'm not in any hurry. I don't know where you have to go. But notice this. We'll go back just a little bit further. Right here. Right here. See that right here, the Ten Commandments? Well, that's not the Ten Commandments. That's the Declaration of the Rights of Men. Done during the French Revolution. And notice, it looks like the Ten Commandments. And you see that right there? What's that right there? It's an all-seeing eye. 
with a pyramid. You see that? It's the declaration of the rights of men. This is what's taking place during the French Revolution. The people are saying, we want our rights. I tell you to do some research. I want you to do, I want you to look up, I want you to look up, I want you to look up uh, citizen. I want you to look up where that word came from. What does the word citizen mean? Look it up. Do, it, do your own homework on that. Where did it come from? This word was used strongly during the French Revolution. You were called citizen. It was something great. It was almost like you were part of a church, but you're not part of a church. You're better than a church. You're better than a saint. You're a citizen. Listen, man, this is serious. In June 17, 1789, the third estate began the French Revolution by declaring itself a national assembly. So you understand that everything before this was a monarchy. Whatever the king said, that's what the people did. But now the people are saying, look, we don't care about what the king says. We have the right and the audacity to do what we got to do. We are the people. We are the people. We declared itself a national assembly. On June 27, Louis, the, the, Louis ordered the clergy and nobility to join the third estate. Now, mind you, they had locked out the third estate because the third estate was getting out of hand. They were misbehaving. So they're locked out. They said, you can't lock us out. We're the National Assembly. So then the people came and said, okay, we'll join you guys. August 1788, 50% of, of a peasant's um, income went to um, purchase bread. By July 1789, this figure had risen to 80%. 80% of their income went to purchase bread. I hope you're listening. 80%. On July 14th, between eight and 900 Parisians, mostly women, gathered in front of the medieval fortress de Bestai. They were looking for weapons and gunpowder. They stormed the prison. 98 were killed, 73 were wounded, and this is why they stormed the prison. Louis, the, Louis had sent for the army to surround the Paris in order to calm down this, this group. But the people said, none of that, let's go get some guns. So they went, broke into the place where they had the guns, got the weaponry. They cut the governor's head off, put it on a, uh, a stick, and walked around speaking French. Viva reason. Cutting off the heads of the mayor, cut off the head of the mayor, walking around talking about reason and revolution. Well, I'm telling you this for a reason. On October 5th, 1789, several hundred Parisian men and women marched 12 miles to Versailles in order to protest the lack of bread to Louis and the National Assembly. That's a lot of people marching to declare we need some food. 20,000 Paris guards loyal to the revolution set out to join the mob. So you had at least 20,000 people marching to Versailles saying we need bread. Give us bread. Watch. The abolition of the special privileges of the nobility was on August 4th, 1789. August 4th, 1789, the Declaration of the Rights of Men. Let's go a little further. On August 10th, 1792, enraged Parisians, men and women, attacked the king's palace, killed several hundred Swiss guards. They cut all their heads off and put them on sticks. And then they, they marched with the heads of the guards on the sticks back to Paris with Louis and his wife, in tow. The king was no longer treated like a king. 
In fact, Louis and his wife ended up staying inside. In fact, we'll get there. On September 21st and 22nd, 1792, the monarchy was officially abolished and a republic was established. The 22nd of September 1792 was known as the day one of year one. In December, Louis XVI was placed on trial for violating the liberty of his subjects. And on January 21st, 1793, Louis was executed like an ordinary criminal. The guillotine was set up, cut off his head, off with his head, killed the king. And you know they didn't have to kill the king. But they killed the king to symbolize that we don't want any monarchies and we don't want any church. Right now. You watch, watch what's going to happen. So there's a counter-revolution loyal to the church and king was led by the noble and the clergy and supported by staunch Catholic peasants. Because this counter-revolution threatened the changes of the revolutionaries, the revolutionaries had to resort to more drastic measures than hitherto imagined. What did they do? They developed a department called the Committee of Public Safety. Come on now, I'm looking at this, this is history. In the weeks after the execution of the king, the internal, the internal and external wars in France continued to grow. Prussian and Austrian forces pushed into the French countryside, and one noted French general even defected to the opposition. That was Lafayette, General Lafayette. Unable to assemble an army out of the disgruntled and pro protesting peasants, the Girardin led national convention started to panic in an effort to restore peace and order. The convention created the Committee of Public Safety on April 6, 1793 to maintain order within France and protect the country from external threats. You would think, I didn't write those words. I got that off the internet. That's out of the historical book. Sounds like Homeland Security to me. History is repeating itself. The beast out of the bottomless pit represented something. We need to see what it represented. The Committee of Public Safety assumed leadership in April 1793 as a branch of the National Convention itself. The Committee of Public Safety had broad powers, which included the organization of the nation's defenses, all foreign policy, and the supervision of ministers. So I don't know if someone's here tonight. Trying to figure out if this guy is a terrorist or not, but I'm not. Amen. I'm for the good of the nation. I love America. Amen. But there are forces in tow that are seeking to monitor and make sure nobody gets out of line. The committee also ordered arrests and trials of counter-revolutionaries and imposed government authority across the nation. To preserve the Republic, Robespierre and the Committee of Public Safety instituted the Reign of Terror. What did they do? Counter-revolutionaries, the Girardins, the priests, the nobles, and the aristocrats immediately fell under suspicion. Danton, a revolutionary who saw peace with Europe, was executed. Now, this was interesting because I, when I was reading about Danton, Danton and Robespierre were a part of the same crew. They were a part of the same club. You know what club they were part of? Part of the Jacobin Club. There were 12 men who ran the co Committee of Public Safety. These 12 men ran the country. And Danton just stepped out of line just a little bit and his own ate him. 
Now, I, I did a little bit more research, because when we look at the French Revolution, everybody says the French Revolution, those were atheists. H.E. Jones, in his book, writes this, and he, he sets up the Articles of Declaration. Notice the Articles of Declaration of the Rights of Men. Notice, the French people acknowledge the existence of the supreme being and the immortality of the soul. That's article number one. Here's my problem. If you know anything about anything, the supreme being is not God in this. The supreme being is always referred to as Lucifer. Look it up online. The supreme being is Lucifer. And they acknowledge the immortality of the soul. Why is that the first article? Next one. It acknowledges that the worship most worthy of the supreme being is the practice of the duties of men. I thought the French Revolution was a bunch of atheists. Let's go a little further. 17,000 people died as a result of the reign of terror. 15,000 at another point were killed and executed at the same time. 100,000 people were detained as suspects. Anybody know about the NDAA? Well, you can walk out this door and they can pick you up in a van and never see you again and hold you indefinitely without charging you. Well, that's in America right now. In the land of the free and the home of the brave. That's in our country. But wait a second. What is amazing is that the only 12 men controlled the Committee of Public Safety, although the CPS was ultimately led by Maximilian Robespierre. This is an interesting man. Impeccable, they say. His hair was always in place. He was a master orator. <laughs> a speaker. A master speaker could sway the crowd with his words. I wonder if there's anybody like that. Some members of the convention, fearing for their own lives, ordered the arrest of Robespierre because Robespierre was killing everybody. Anybody that looked like a suspect, he killed them. Killed, killed their family, their cousin. You look like you were against the revolution, he killed you. Well, they said, well, he's going to come after us too. Let's kill him first. So they killed Robespierre. In fact, it's actually tragic how they started to come after him. He tried to kill himself, shot himself in the jaw. He didn't die. The next day they took him and cut his head off. This is the French Revolution. This was real. This is real history. These were insane times. Now I want to just tap a little bit into the thought process of what was happening during these times. Voltaire. The teachings of this time. I am weary of hearing people repeat that 12 men established the Christian religion. I will prove that one man may suffice to overthrow it. That's Voltaire. The constitutional Bishop of Paris was brought forward to play the principal part in the most impudent and scandalous farce ever acted in the face of a national representation. He was brought forward in full procession to declare the convention that the religion which he had taught so many years was in every respect a piece of priestcraft, which had no foundation either in history or sacred truth. He disowned in solemn and explicit terms the existence of deity to whose worship he had been consecrated and devoted himself in future to the homage of liberty, equality, virtue, and morality. Hmm. Think. I read that, I start thinking. Hubert Schammer and the associates appeared at the bar and declared God did not exist. The fear of God was said to be so far from the beginning of wisdom that it was the beginning of folly. All worship was prohibited except that of 
Except that of what? Liberty. Liberty and what? Interesting. The gold and silver plate of the churches were seized and desecrated. The churches were closed. The bells were broken and cast into the cannon. The Bible was publicly burned. The sacramental vessels were paraded through the streets on an ass in token of contempt. A week of ten days instead of seven was established, and death was declared a conspicuous letter posted on burial places to be but an eternal sleep. Now watch carefully what I'm going to do here. This is all out of uh, Uriah Smith's book, Daniel Revelation. You can look this part up. But the crowning blasphemy, if these orgies of hell admit of degrees, began, remain to be performed by the comedian Monvel. By comedian. By what? Comedian. Comedians are, are often the most powerful communicators. But notice what he says. Who was a priest of what? Interesting. God, if you exist, avenge your injured name. I bid you defiance. You remain silent. You dare not launch your thunders. Who after this will believe in your existence? But notice what he's called. He's called a priest of what? A priest of Illuminism. But watch. With blasphemous boldness, almost beyond belief. This is from Sister White. One of the priests of the new order. Wait. New order? First, in Uriah Smith, she calls him the priest of Illuminism. In Sister White, she calls him the priest of a new order. God, if you exist, avenge your injured name. I bid you defiance. You remain silent. You dare not launch your thunders. Who after this will believe in your existence? Well, it seems to me that there is something afoot here. When the goddess was brought into the convention, the orator took her by the hand and turning to the assembly said, Mortals, cease to tremble before the powerless God of the powerless thunders of a God whom your fears have created. Henceforth acknowledge no divinity but I want you to lock that in your mind. Acknowledge no divinity but reason. I'm going somewhere with this. You guys, I hope you hold your seatbelts on. Going somewhere with this. Acknowledge no divinity but reason. It's intellect. And now they make a symbol of that reason. They bring in this woman. Henceforth, acknowledge no divinity but reason. If you offer it, if I offer you this noblest, purest image, if you must have idols sacrificed only to such as this, fall before the august senate of freedom, O veil of reason. And they bring in this woman that holds her hands like this. It's called the Statue of Liberty. But it's a woman, it's a prostitute. The goddess, after being embraced by the president, was mounted on a magnificent car and conducted amid a immense crowd to the Cathedral of Notre Dame to take the place of the deity. There she was elevated on a high altar and received the adoration of all president. They took a call girl and put her here in the pulpit. There is no God. If you want to worship an image, worship this beautiful lady. They sent her to America, called her the Lady Liberty. You guys understand, this is real. This is not made, I didn't make this up. I'm not smart enough to do it. <laughs> One of the ceremonies of this insane time stands unraveled by, for the absurdity combined with impiety. The doors of the convention were thrown open to a band of musicians, preceded by whom the members of the municipal body entered in solemn procession, singing a hymn in praise of liberty. And escorting as the object of their future worship a veiled female, whom they've termed the goddess of reason. 
Being brought within the bar, she was unveiled with great form and placed on the right hand of the president when she was generally recognized as a dancing girl of the opera with whose charms most of the persons present were acquainted from her appearance on stage while the experience of individuals was far more extended. To this person was the fittest representation of that reason whom they worship. The National Convention of France rendered public homage to the goddess of reason. Great Controversy 268 says these words. When they shall have finished or are finishing their testimony, talking about the two witnesses, the, the law and the testimony, when they are finishing their testimony in regards to the papal power, there's a power that's going to arise. The period when these two witnesses were to prophesy clothed in sackcloth ended in 1798. As they were approaching the termination of their work in obscurity, war was to be made upon them by the power represented as the beast ascending out of the bottomless pit. In many of the nations of Europe, the powers that ruled in church and state have for centuries been controlled by Satan through the medium of the papacy. But here is brought to view a new manifestation of satanic power. Why is it new? Why is it that this beast out of the bottom of the pit is different from the previous beast? Remember, you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Papal Rome is altogether new. It's a, it's, it's, Sister White calls it a satanic masterpiece because it blends Christianity and religion together. But this one is different. It's a religion of reason. I wonder how far and how effective this religion has been. I'm going to back past some of these things. Time is running away from me. 538 to 1798. The beast that sins out of the bottomless pit especially kills the, prophet, the law and the prophets from 1793 to 1797. 1793, they literally say, by law, God does not exist. And then three and a half years later, they literally say by law, God does exist. In that time frame from 1793 to 1797, events were so drastic in France, the people said we have to institute by law and bring God back into society. Y'all not hear me. Society had got so bad that they had to institute by law that God did exist. Let's go a little further. But another power, the beast from the bottomless pit, was to arise to, um, to make open of our war upon the word of God. The beast from the bottomless pit made war on the word of God. Now, mind you, this beast has not finished his work. Remember we read, thousands of years Satan has been working upon the properties of the human mind and has learned to know it well. He is linking his mind with humanities. How does he, how does he do this? Now, no, watch this. I mean, TV is a part of it, but watch this. I want you to listen and please don't get mad, okay? Don't get mad. Don't get mad. I want you to listen and learn. The mastermind in the confederacy of evil is ever working to keep out of sight the words of God and to bring into view the opinions of who? He means that we shall not hear the voice of God saying, 
This is the way, walk ye in it, through, listen, through perverted educational processes. He is doing his utmost to obscure heaven's light. Did you hear what I said? Through perverted educational processes. And all of us have been through a system that is not after the origins and order of God. All of us. You can't, listen to me, you can't take the humanities and then put in one Bible class and say there's a Christian school. Do you understand what I'm saying? If everything in that school is not centered on the word of God, is a perverted educational process. And all of us, I've gone through the system. I've been through the educational processes. The problem is we're not taught to meditate on the word. We're not taught to the, how, to commun, how to commun, how do you commune with God? How do you hear God speak to your heart? How do you follow God's word? We're not taught that. We're taught, get the degree, make the money, live the American dream, which is really not a dream. That's what we're taught. We're not taught men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word, every word, every word, every word. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your path. All, all. What does all mean? Uh, what part of my life is not all? How I dress. Wait, wait, let's stop right there. How I dress. I don't need the world to dictate to me how I'm supposed to dress. I need to get on my knees and say, Father, what is the best attire that heaven would approve of? And then have his word show me. You know, the Bible can tell you, the Bible tells you how you should dress. But wait, wait. How about my diet? Don't get mad, I'm not, you know, I don't know you guys. But my diet. Lord, in every way, Lord, what, what is it in here? What is it in the word that I need to understand in regards to my diet and my lifestyle? How about how to raise my children? How about how to have an Adventist home? How about a system of education? Lord, what is it that you desire? Every word. Every word. But Satan is slick and he's clever. He's gotten us to say, I appreciate, you know, church, that was wonderful today. Great message, preacher. And then we leave and we live as if God didn't say anything. It's because of the way we've been trained to think. You know when you get up in the morning and you're able to roll out of bed and put your foot on the ground? You thought you did that. You thought, like the breath right now, the, the one you're breathing? What, did you command that breath? The God of the universe is so intimately concerned about you that he says, breathe. Breathe. This is the God of heaven. Every detail of every aspect of our life, we should be depending upon the word, but we are so used to being able to do things on our own. Our finances. Our money. It's my money. I earned it. You earned it. Let me think about that. You earned it. What happens when you don't have a job? 
The Lord gave that money to you. Amen. Amen. The Lord gave you that job. The Lord gives you the wisdom and, and, and the understanding of where to put his money. It's his money. All of it. Not just 10%. Amen. Amen. It all belongs to God. And it's because of perverted educational processes we think we know better than God. It always breaks my heart and I think about this often. You know, people in their relationships. You know, God is a good master. He's a master matchmaker. One day I'll tell you my testimony how God gave me my wife. I mean, gave her to me, like for real. <laughs> gave her to me. She was praying, I'm praying a whole other state. Lord, I, you know, I'm feeling a little lonely, but I know you're there with me, Lord, so I'm not really lonely, but it'd be nice if I could share things, with, you know, with somebody. She's over there praying in another place. And in fact, it was at church. I'll just tell you this part. Then you have to go listen to it on some online somewhere. But that, she came down and she was doing a special prayer in front. And she got on her knees that Sabbath. She said, Father, I, you know, it'd be nice if I had a husband, a man of God after your own heart. She prayed for her husband. She went back and sat down. And as soon as she sat down, there was a tap on her shoulder. She turns around, she sees an, an older dude. She's like, no, nah, Lord, that's, that's too early. No. <laughs> None of that. But my dad reached over and said, you know, what, what's your name? She said, Alpha. He sat back and didn't say nothing else to her. After church is over, my mom leans over and says, excuse my husband. My name is Deborah. And then my dad says, yes, my name is Victor, and I'm looking for someone for my son. Straight up. Looked at her, made sure she wasn't too tall for me, you know, just. Got her phone number, got her email address. Gave me a call, said, son, I think I found her. I was like, who found, found who, man? I think I found your wife. I was like, dad, I'm good, man. I don't know about you and you. <laughs> Picking. Picking for me. My wife and I are happily married. We did it God's way. You can't do it better than God's way. You can't be happier than doing it God's way. So it's when you do it your way that sadness comes. It's when you get together in that carnality and that carnality doesn't sustain you beyond a couple of months of flesh activity. You understand what I'm saying? It only lasts for so long and after that you really have to love each other. You really have to sacrifice for one another. You have, really have to put in for each other. But that only comes if you really have a love relationship with Jesus. But through perverted educational processes, friends. Another source of danger against which we should constantly be on guard is the reading of infidel authors. Such works are inspired by the enemy of truth and no one can read them without imperiling their soul. Well, mind you, there's no TV then. So you can't watch the shows of infidels and think it doesn't affect you. You understand what I'm saying? Can't watch the, you can't watch the TV of this world and don't think that that doesn't affect your mind. And notice he says, it is true that some who are affected by them may finally recover, but all who tamper with their evil influence place themselves on Satan's ground. 
And he makes the most of his advantage as they invite his temptations. They have not the wisdom to discern nor the strength to resist them. With a fascinating, bewitching power, unbelief and infidelity fasten themselves upon the mind. With a what? Fascinating, bewitching power. I want you to understand this idea. People who do not, do not like spirit of prophecy don't like testimony of Jesus because that, you know, sometimes we say we don't like Ellen White. Ellen White is simply a vessel that the testimony of Jesus was spoken through. And when you reject the testimony of Jesus, you're not rejecting Ellen White. You're rejecting Jesus. That's how serious that is. That's not like a small thing. It's not like, a, you know, I get to choose if, can't, can't pick and choose. And it's dangerous, friends, to read something and then say, I know what it means, but it's for her day. I understand what it's talking about, but we're only human. She just tried to be in my shoes. It's trouble. It's deceptive and it's dangerous. Even Bible study, as too often conducted in the school, is robbing the people, robbing the world, robbing the world of the priceless treasure of the word of God. The work of higher criticism and dissecting, conjecturing, reconstructing is destroying faith in the Bible as divine revelation. It is robbing God's word of power to control, uplift, and inspire human lives. Now, here's some of the teachers. I don't know if you've ever seen these teachers before. I was a religious education major at one point, and I had to study Jacques Rousseau. I had to study John Locke for school. These are the teachers of the age of reason and age of enlightenment. These are the thinkers that inspired the French Revolution. I don't know if you know Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, the Bolshevik Revolution. All these revolutions and teachers were inspired by the teachers that I showed you prior. Now, notice, I want you to see that this is not from a um, conspiracy theory book. What book is this? Encyclopedia Britannica. So this is not a conspiracy theory. Please, you know, I'm not into that. Okay? But I want you to read. The Illuminati, a short-lived movement founded as a secret society in 1776 in, Bav in Bavaria by Adam Westhop, professor of canon law at the University of Ingolstadt and a former Jesuit. Its aim was to replace Christianity with a religion of, did you see that? Did you, did you see that though? Do you understand what I'm saying? So what we read before in the historical, historical books where it says the goddess of reason, you kept seeing that? The goddess of reason, they kept talking about the goddess of reason. Well, this was talking about a movement that was placed afoot by this group and it's this group that influenced the French, French Revolution. Wait a second. Well, that's from, again, this is a reputable source. Is that right? Encyclopedia Britannica, the 13th edition. Notice this. Thank you. 
So, let me ask you a question. Did, did heaven produce that commercial? It's almost like Satan just said, let me just make fun of everybody. I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to do it in a funny way. I'm just going to make you look stupid. This is not a game. Notice what this says. This is from the New Freedom, page 24, of President Woodrow Wilson. You see, you see President, he's a reputable source. Wouldn't you think so? Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they had better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. That's Woodrow Wilson, a reputable source. Let's go a little further. Who's this man? Winston Churchill. From the days of Spartacus Westhop, that's Adam Westhop, to the close, to those of Karl Marx, to those of Trotsky, Bellacoon, Rosen Luxemburg, and Emma Goldman, this worldwide conspiracy has been steadily growing. This conspiracy played a definitely recognizable role in the tragedy of what? Interesting. It has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century, and now at last this band of extraordinary personalities from the underworld of the great cities of Europe and America have gripped the Russian people. It's talking about the Bolshevik Revolution. And by the hair of their heads, they have become the practical, undisputed masters of this enormous empire. Interesting. President, prime minister, talking about these underlings that are controlling and masterminding the world. Let's go a little further. I think three witnesses is what we need. Two to three witnesses. That's how many need? It says, at the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine, but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of the, the same what? Same teaching that led to the French Revolution are all tending to involve the what? In a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. So I'm not worried about secret society. I'm worried about the teaching. I'm worried about the teaching that is influencing the whole world and involving the whole world in a similar struggle that convulsed all of France. What you saw in France, you're going to see global. And we've already begun. You don't understand. We've already begun. So I saw this and I, I looked at this and I said, well, this intensified in the year 2008. Why do I say 2008? Remember, it says the combination of wealth and power, the vast combinations of the enriching of the few at the expense of the many. In 2008, you had money supposedly collapsing because of the financial crisis and the, the real estate bubble. Is that right? Yeah. But you know, money is never destroyed. Money is only transferred. It's kind of like energy. The money was transferred. Where, did, where was it transferred to? What was it that was being drained out of the people and why was it? And who got rich in the crisis? And people got rich. People got rich, very rich, because they knew what was happening. They did. Anyway, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, so here it says, combination of fewer classes for the defense of their interests and claims. 
So the poorer classes are going to come together, and the result of that will be the spirit of unrest, riot, and bloodshed. Have we seen that? That's intensifying. That's happening right now. And don't think that's just going to be in the Middle East. It's about to be right here in America. Now, I want you to see something. I need to stop for now. In Revelation, Revelation chapter 17. Go there with me for a moment, please. Revelation 17. Remember, in Revelation 11, we saw a beast come out of a pit. In Revelation 17, we see something as well. Revelation 17 in verse number 8. And the Bible says, the beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and shall go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of the life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not, and yet is. Now let me ask you this simple question. Maybe you're familiar with Revelation 17, you might be able to answer it. The beast that rose out of the bottomless pit in Revelation 11, was anyone or anything riding on that beast in Revelation 11? In Revelation 11? Nobody is riding on that beast in Revelation 11. But in Revelation 17, who rides on the beast? The church. Out of chaos comes a new order. Listen to what I'm saying. This chaos that we're seeing is establishing a new order, but this time it will not be without the woman sitting on top of her. The papacy is about to be in complete dominant position. And I'm saying to the church, pay attention, church, pay attention. If we're that close, what manner of person are we to be? If we're that close, if we see the same thing happening then, happening now, I say it's time to stop playing games. Notice what it says. Remember the conditions that led to the French Revolution? Let's look and see if these are going to happen. The world moves closer to full price shock. January 2011. I haven't updated 2012 yet, but 2011. world moves closer to full price shock. Thousands protest against high food prices in Delhi. Asian state feels rice pinch. Seems like there's a food crisis afoot. Greek protests descend into chaos as rioters clash with police on the streets of Athens. Notice, it says in Chicago, the price of soybeans rose as much as 5.2% to $14.20 a bushel, the highest since 2008. Corn prices jumped 5% to $6.37 a bushel, the highest since 2000, July 2008. Bigger problem, job crisis or rising global food prices? That's the question. The article goes on to say it's a food problem. Food prices increasing from global warming, whether you believe in that or not. Sarkozy warns of soaring commodity prices. What are we seeing? We're seeing the increase in the cost of living, the increase in the cost of food. I wonder, anybody rent go up in here? Nobody rents. You guys are all rich, huh? Rent has increased. Just went up on me a couple days ago. My wages haven't gone up. Same conditions. Food prices will have grave consequences, says Hillary Clinton. Everybody believes what Hillary says. They don't believe what the Bible says. 
from China's disaster. 2010, China drought and dust storms were a series of severe droughts during the spring of 2010 that affected the Yunnan, and I can't say all those words, but the drought has, has been referred to as the worst in the century since southwestern China. In other words, the drought in China caused a food crisis. A record heat wave and growing water crisis in India are forcing the politicians to reconsider implementing using user fees and other measures to conserve water. What comes out of India? Food comes out of India. 10% of the world's total output, of, or, or 20% for the export, were hit by the highest record temperatures Russia has seen in 130 years of record keeping. The most widespread drought in more than three decades and massive wildfires have stretched across seven regions, including Moscow. A world food crisis, friends. The French government lowered their wheat crop forecast to 2.7% over last year due to drought and cold weather. We're talking about a world food crisis. A record-setting drought has affected the main grain-producing provinces in the western part of the nation. Ukraine disaster, the world's top producer of barley and the sixth biggest of wheat, hit as hard as Russia by the fire and drought to the point that they have halted all their export grains in the year 2011. Global food crisis. Australia, we can go in Pakistan. Notice what the man has in his hand. What's in his hand? I saw that picture, I was like, what in the world? Didn't the French Revolution have that same thing? Bread was the main problem, right? But now it says Arabs looking to Tunisia for revolution, and the man is holding up bread. It's a world crisis, friends. I hope you were paying attention in Egypt. Protests. And notice what they put on the screen. On the top of Time magazine, the picture, the protester, as if this is the man of the year. This is ordered and contrived. Listen to me. They are purposely and intentionally moving the masses to get to a certain point. And when they get there, friends, I'm asking you, are you ready for Jesus to come? That's real. That's not fake. That's real. That's not fake. This is real. This really happens. But you say, oh, that's way over there, coming to America. And, this, and you see, the reason why they're allowing this to transpire, friends, is because once it gets here, once it gets here, you will not be able to buy or sell unless you have the mark or the name or the number. Do you know what that means? See, the mark of the beast is simply a covenant. See, if you receive the mark, you say you receive protection. That's what it is. You accept the authority and the protection of the papal power or ultimately Satan. That's what the mark of the beast signifies, that you have entered into covenant with man. But the seal of God symbolizes that you've entered into a covenant relationship with Jesus. And that he will protect you. And he will keep you. And he will write his law in your inward parts. So that when all the world around has gone into complete chaos, you can still walk and talk like a Christian. In our last session, we're going to take a break now, I guess. In our last session, you don't want to miss this last session. I'm going to give you the secret to how to make it in this final crisis. I'm going to show you the position you need to be in. I'm going to show you the position you need to be in, where Christ is. And what you need to be expecting in these next few months to the next few years. You don't want to miss it. It's my favorite subject. 
My favorite subject is Jesus anyway, but as it goes, this is my favorite subject to present in this manner. We'll take a break, get some fresh air, stay by and meditate. Um, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, a ton of information in this short amount of time. And I pray, Father, that it's whet the appetite of the student of the word to go back and study and to solidify themselves in your word. Father, we see history being repeated. We see the world going into a complete, total chaos, reflecting the microcosm of the French Revolution. And we ask, Father, that that word, that testimony, the law and the prophets be within our hearts. And may those words be true of us. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Pray this in the name of Jesus and claim the merits of his blood. Amen. Amen.